Hey guys, this is episode two with Trish. Um, if you're only just listening to this, I would recommend you go back one episode and listen to the first part of my interview with her. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Mind Gym Podcast. Then, then a byproduct of that is liking ourselves and a byproduct of that is loving ourselves. And that's important because if we don't love ourselves and don't like ourselves, then how, how could we expect anybody else to? And that's, that's tough to move through the world that way. What about you, Danny? I, and I, what about you? Um, what a great question that is, Trish. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, I think 70% of the time I do, 30% of the time I'm frustration. Um, and the frustration, if I wanted to break that down even more so, you know, 15% of that is my ideas. My brain works faster than reactions, what I want to do to get them done. So I'm quite a high ideator, I'd say, and I'm quite good at connecting dots. And sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm a one-man band with with these ideas and and sometimes it, it requires more than just the one man band. So that's where the frustration comes from. And the other fifteen percent I just think that that other fifteen percent is there is for me to kind of continue building on, on me as my person and as a character. You know, I think I've always got traits. What I look at sometimes and go, hmm, could have handled that one better. Hmm, could have done that better and and I think I think that's always gonna be the case. I think, you know, I'm kind of like that as a person, you know. I don't think I'll ever be hundred percent successful on 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 loving myself, on liking myself, because I think there's always going to be that fifteen percent of frustration, and then that other fifteen percent of can probably do that a bit better next time. So yeah, that's kind of my breakdown of that, I guess. No, and that, I, I understand, and that makes some. I, I mean that that makes some sense, I guess. In my experience, for me. You know, again, it kind of goes back to um, that moment of embarrassment or that moment of shame or that moment of regret or that ro- moment of, you know, humility. And I, I think of, I think the times that I get most frustrated with myself or when I don't do something, I don't do, I don't fulfill a commitment that I said that I was going to do. And I, and I don't mean something that's necessarily over time or necessarily a big commitment. I mean, like, you know, like if I made a commitment that, and I did like this summer, like I made a commitment that I'm going to go back to doing triathlons and then I'm going to do three triathlons and I'm late in executing against my training plan and, and really getting that going. And the thing that I have found with myself is I have to love this version of Trish either way, because if I just sit here and berate her for not getting on the bike when she said she would or not, you know, not going for the run or not going for the swim or this and another thing, like I can get tough with myself and I can spend a few moments there. But if I extend it past any of that, it, it, it doesn't necessarily form a feedback loop that I find for me helps motivate me to do any better next time. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not a lack of taking responsibility, but it's, how do I not make it so dramatic for myself that now I, I, you know, I've, I've created such a negative feedback loop for myself that I, it shuts me down and I just don't even want to do it at all because to 
to think about it or screwing up just brings back that sense of guilt and, and those emotions. And so sometimes what I try to do when I'm in that kind of a loop and I, I find myself getting really kind of heavy on myself about something that I'm not proud of and that I don't particularly like and I go, okay, well, all right, got it, great, acknowledged and here are the aspects of it. Well, now what am I going to do? what am I going to do next? Right. So how am I going to address this? And then how am I just going to kind of let that go and get on with it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think kind of my problem is I always set myself daft goals. And when I say daft goals, I set them usually to a point where I'm like, they're quite, they're, they're always stretching. They're always stretching. Setting up a, a community was quite stretching. Setting up a podcast is quite stretching the social media behind all that, the editing behind all that, and, you know, it's one band. Add on top of that the meetups, what I do, and the talks, they're all stretching. And fundamentally, it's, you know, these aren't f- for money. I make no money whatsoever. If anything, I kind of lose money on the meetups. In fact, I do lose money on the meetups. But I have also got to think, of, well, that's my way of giving back. You know, that's kind of, that's my way of giving back. And I think if, it's, if it helps two people who are kind of new into what we're doing, and it helps them kind of wade through the noise and get to good quality information, then kind of job done, I guess. That's, but then, you know, my next thing is kind of, okay, how do I go from a meetup to a conference? And actually, how do I make my conference be more of an experience rather than just your typical conference? So then, I, yeah, so then I kind of, I've got like five, ten big goals where I want to achieve, and one of them is creating this true immersive experience. A bit like... Have you ever have you heard of Meow Wolf? No. So Meow Wolf is like this experience, immersive experience, and you can go to it five or six times, and every time you go, you'll it's a it's narrated story. Or you can go there and go for a kind of an aesthetic experience, or you can go there and kind of f- follow five or six different stories. And it's I like the idea of that. I like the idea of immersive experience and experience design, but I also think experience design. I enjoy experience design looking at it from an org design as well and going okay how should this be experienced so yeah it's um i don't know i think th- there's always a hurry to learn more and then by doing that there's, there's always that thing where you forget to go okay just pace yourself and 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 kind of step back and look at actually you've done quite a lot already you know it's i don't know i don't know well and i think that that makes a lot of sense to me, right? I mean, we we have a tendency of often, and, and again, this goes into conditioning, where we've been conditioned in society for a break-fix mentality. We're looking for broken things, right? So where are my weak spots? Because that's what goes into my performance review. Where are my weak spots? Because that goes into the way that I'm disciplined at home by my parents. You know, what you know, that's the way that I'm, you know, disciplined, if you will, by my friends and by my family, by my you know, by my spouse, by my children, you know, whomever it's, you know, we're, we're kind of hyper-focused on where our gaps are. That's why, you know, oftentimes when we facilitate or, or, or speak at a, at a, at a conference and, you know, we get that, you know, that one, you know, evaluation that comes back that's negative when every, you know, when everything else might be glowing and we, you know, sort of get, you know, transfixed on that thing that's, you know, missing, that's lacking. Um, and there's a, and we forget, right? Like we don't necessarily celebrate those successes. And uh, one of the other works that I was recently 
re-engaged with that has helped revitalize me and to kind of remember to celebrate not only my own successes, but to celebrate successes of the people around me and and to make sure to do that in a very deliberate and meaningful way, right? Like to, and, and by that, I mean, like to pause, right? To really take the time to really acknowledge that. Um, and, and it reminds me of David Cooper Ryder's work with appreciative inquiry and, you know, focusing on the things that are strong and the things that are going well and the things that are sustainable and the things that, you know, again, really serve us. And how do we do more of that? How do we identify those things and, and go deeper and do more of that? And, um, and the last thing is just, you made me think of it with the experience design and having these immersive, um, so two things that perhaps people will find, you know, sort of um, odd in my experience is I actually spent um, quite a bit of time uh, when I was younger with the Grateful Dead um, and the whole deadhead phenomenon and and so on and so forth and talk about an immersive experience. And I uh, two summers ago, it'll be two summers ago this uh, this August, I was actually a Burning Man in uh, Nevada. Wow. Um, here in the United States, you want to talk about about an immersive (laughs) experience, but, but, you know, but it, but in both of those, um, you know, so I can totally appreciate the designing an experience that just really takes people out of themselves and, and gives them an opportunity to, um, to, to re-explore and reassess and reconsider, um, and, and, you know, in the context of sort of this um, meaningful events that just, you know, prompts a transformation and, and even transcendence sometimes of a, of, a, of a sort because it just takes you completely out of an environment um, that you no longer really have an understanding of how to function in. And so it takes you outside of yourself and you have no other resource other than to be curious and to be resilient and to be flexible in how it is that you you navigate something that can be so um, so alien. So if you're it doesn't mean you're necessarily planning seventy thousand people in you know the the backwoods of an Indian reservation on federal land in a you know. Um, glacier ecosystem in the middle of the desert of Nevada. But if you're planning something that's, you know, interesting, that's, that's meant to um, take people out of themselves. And when you get to the point of doing that, then, you know, count me in if I can help in some kind of way. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I think I've kind of come to the conclusion of experience design kind of gets thrown about in, in the wrong ways. And I've kind of started, I've, I've kind of called it my experience design manifesto. And I put the first post out there on LinkedIn actually just yesterday saying what even is experience design. So I've kind of, people define experience design in different ways and different industries call it different things. And sometimes it's even the wrong thing what they're calling it. And so it's kind of my definition of it. Um, And it seems got quite a lot of traction actually. And and it it seems to be going well. So I'm kind of just going to build different blog posts. I'm kind of going to, I'm doing a talk at Learning Tech day next week which is kind of covering it a little bit as well um but yeah i'm i'm kind of i'm really enjoying this experience design and 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 actually digging digging deep into what i think it is because i just feel like a lot of people don't know what it is so why not why not try and help and explain so that's that's it's probably my area of focus what i'm really into 
kind of I've been doing it for for years, but without really knowing it was experienced design. If that makes sense. So yeah, that... that makes complete sense. I'll have to I'll have to check out the LinkedIn post. Yeah, no, that that'd be good. I'd love your feedback on that for sure. So I guess being mindful of time here, Trish, as well. It's you know, I think we look at AR VR. And, and I define AR and VR as a 3D TV and a 4K TV. Um, one's, one's a trend, one's a fad. And when I look at how to put that in the different context of jeans is a trend, having them rolled up, having rips in them is a fad. So, and this is going to be, I, I hope this triggers you, is blockchain the next fad or is it the next trend? Blockchain will change the human experience in a way that hasn't changed in 5,000 years. Okay, that's a that's a bold statement. Let, let's get, <laughs> let's get into it, Trish. Let's get into it. Blockchain is uh, so um, so. Uh, there's a big rabbit hole here. Um, <laughs> so so let's go back to um, so when you did your your rapid questions about. Um, wasn't the rapid questions it was about the uh what's the first thing that comes to mind when you know you presented me danny with you know a certain list of words yep and one of the words that you said was either was it was it digital or digitization so i said digital analytics ai and then i think i think i said blockchain on the back end of that one as well okay and what was my answer to digital um i think you said um I mean, I'd have to listen to it, but I think you said it was kind of. <laughs> I think you said it was kind of like. I can't. I, I can't remember. I can't remember, Trish. No, that's okay. So my my one word answer back to when you when you threw digital out, my one word response was Bitcoin. Yes. And um, and I want to clarify. So. So if we if we go back to again the late 80s, early 90s. And the reason why that time period is relevant to today is because that was the first wave of computer automation really coming into the workplace and into society. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, again, 1995 is when we got email in the United States coming into the office. The World Wide Web was launched in 1993, which gave people a reason to be on the internet. we got, you know, uh, browsers, um, internet browsers, you know, all of, all of that happened in that, you know, mid nineties timeframe, at least starting here in the United States. It's also kind of fascinating to know that we just, I think it was just at the end of last year, beginning of this year, that, that even given that we've had internet technology and access to the World Wide Web and this kind of computer automation and technology for decades now in parts of the Western world, that there's just under half of humanity that hasn't come online yet. I mean, there's still less than, you know, less than half of humanity um, or or almost half of humanity hasn't had an online experience yet, which is kind of um, crazy to think about. And if I think about in the United States, how many things changed significantly from, you know, let's even say from 1993 into the year 2000, when Bill Clinton became president of the United States, all of that wave of change, including the competition and the competitive drivers of people going online and and digitizing in that first form of automation and computer automation for the first time, 
all came from local competition because by the time we got to the year 2000, there were still less than a million people online at the time, um, which is really kind of nuts. And now we've got 3.6 billion people online. So, so how does that, how does that change as we go through these cycles of automation? And it's relevant today in that I think of these technologies as not being separate things. Artificial intelligence is starting out separate from blockchain, but the two are meant to be integrated together. It, it's kind of like for those of us that can think back to, we used to have the internet, which was something that we accessed on our desktop computers. And separately, we used to have a mobile phone when it used to just be a mobile phone, right? Like, <laughs> so before we had this thing that we call a smartphone, we used to have these two different technologies that existed in parallel to each other, but never the twain shall meet that are now integrated together. We can't, and I would say most of the Western world, we can't imagine not having a smartphone that doesn't have access to the internet now. And, and we've gotten used to now being able to, you know, I just was on another international trip. And now for, you know, what used to cost me a king's ransom to have internet on my phone while I was wandering around, you know, the streets of London or the streets of Madrid or wherever in the world I was is now, you know, reduced down to $10 a day, right? So for me to have my international data package and have internet while I'm, you know, trying to look up Google Maps to get from whatever point A to point B and navigate, you know, whatever city that I'm in. So all of that to say, we're gonna wind up with this convergence. We're gonna wind up with a convergence where these core technologies are going to come together. So AI and blockchain right now are separate and AI, artificial intelligence is ahead of the adoption rates, but blockchain, enterprise blockchain is hot on its heels. And, and when these two come together, they have very complementary services and, and that's, also in the mix of, you know, you opened with talking about my sentiments on things like 5G. And I've said before that 5G is like the lightning strike that brings the Frankenstein monster to life. Because then what happens with 5G is we then wind up with the connectivity, the hyper connectivity and the internet bandwidth, if you will, that gives us the ability to access AI and blockchain and data and analytics through IoT, Internet of Things devices, these sensors, these wearables, these implantables, these tablets, these mobiles, these, you know, all of these different devices that are coming into our experience now, it connects everything together and allows the exchange of information at lightning speed. And when we get that exchange of information at lightning speed, it brings up issues of trust. You know, so for you and I to even have this conversation, there needs to be a level of trust, right? So being the host of a podcast and bringing a guest such as myself onto the platform, one of the things that you did, Danny, was sent the document ahead of time and said, look, you know, here are kind of the rules of engagement, right? Here, here Trish, this is, this is my expectation of you. This is what you should expect of me. And there were, you know, some uh, boundaries that were set in the document that you sent that was going to make this a safe place or a trusted place for us to be able to have a conversation that's, you know, really kind of meandered all over the board, right? So blockchain is the digital expression of trust. Dot, dot, blockchain begins to actually mediate those exchanges where we're exchanging something of value. In this case, of value is the conversation 
and the exchange that we're having is mediated by this sense of trust. But there are these other exchanges of value that we have, whether it's financial value or property value or um, content or knowledge value, where there are these exchanges that we often use a third party in order to mediate that level of trust and to enforce that trust happens, right? So if I were going to sell my home, then I would have other third parties involved in the sale of the property. So if you were going to come and buy my house in Wheaton and I was going to sell the house to you, we probably wouldn't do it direct. We'd have, you know, you'd have a real estate attorney. I'd have a real estate attorney. You'd have a real estate agent. I'd have a real estate agent. There are these other people, these third party entities that would work and advocate on our behalves that your people would, you know, keep your best interest. My people would keep my best interest and they would actually you know, a lot of this exchange of property in this case, you paying money for the actual physical property of the residents would actually be mediated by these third parties. And what happens is, is blockchain removes the third parties. It actually becomes the mechanism by which this exchange of value and the trust that's necessary in order to do this exchange becomes mediated not only by technology, but becomes digital. So it used to be like when I bought my house 20 years ago, in order to do a house closing, I had to actually be here physically in Wheaton in order to go to the closing. I had to you know, meet with the, the person I was buying the house from. I had to meet with her real estate agent and her attorney. And we all sat down in this massive, you know, neutral setting. Um, and there was no angst. I didn't know this woman from, you know, Eve's house cat. I mean, I was just buying a house from her, <laughs> you know, like she didn't know me. And this was, this was in the 1990s. She couldn't Google me. She couldn't look me up. I couldn't Google her and look her up. But yet we have these third party mediaries involved in this, in this transaction. Cause that's, you know, that's how you do things. And there were reams of paperwork that we would sign. And all of that happened in the analog world. It all happened in the physical world. So what blockchain offers fueled by AI and data, and then eventually lightning strike with 5G, making it super responsive and super, super fast, is it gives us the ability of being able to digitize those exchanges in a way that we've never been able to do it before, which allows us to do those trusted exchanges at scale and speed and variety and velocity that we've just never had before because we were kind of stuck in the physical world and now we're moving to things being in the digital world. And so when you said digital and I said Bitcoin, the reason being is because Bitcoin is actually the very first digital asset that we have. It's the very first digital asset that we as human beings have created that actually stands on its own as being an asset that's not mediated by a third party. So, even if I created digital content right now in order to send it, there would be other, you know, there could be copies of it that are distributed. You know, I could do some kind of rights, you know, management and some kind of asset management I could try, but it's very difficult not to have stuff mass produced right now. You know, just look at anybody who's trying to, you know, put together any kind of intellectual property. And Bitcoin, because of the nature of blockchain as the underlying technology, allows us to now have these immutable, trusted um, objects of value that are fully in the digital world. So I think I spoke with you a good 
six, seven months ago, and I, I think there was a debate going on on Twitter, and I was kind of like, if if we look at this from a a world of I I'm at company A and I want to move to company B, and at company A I've got lots of certificates, lots of badges, lots of insert whatever's coming. That can be if if the infrastructure of company B is supported, then would all my information be transferred from A to B via blockchain? Is I'm at, I'm I'm going kind of very high level with this because my knowledge is nowhere near as good as yours on this just for sure. But and I guess if that is the case and that's how it works, and we look at the badge system, the badge system will come down from kind of a university to a an an external badge system and and that that would go into our our journal, our blockchain journal, if you like. So would would the blockchain, in in essence, if you move from company A to company B to company C, company D, could that in theory provide our company's infrastructure set up right, follow you around? Is that the is that is that fair to say, or am I kind of way away from it? Yeah, you're on the you're on the right path, and the and the rabbit hole, of course, gets you know multiplied and and deeper than that. It goes far beyond the qualifications and the badges. Although that's that's where we're beginning to see it, you know, show up more or feel like it's happening in academia and happening in L and D. But it's it's there are actually much larger use cases that are out there than that. But but let's stick to that for a moment because here here's a way to kind of simplify it for a moment. And I, I do appreciate that some people listening to the podcast may not be able to relate through their own personal experience to what I'm about to say because they simply weren't born yet. And that's cool. So hang with me. Um, but again, going back to computer automation, like back in the 1990s, I mean, if, if I said to you right now, Danny, point to the internet, where is the internet? <laughs> I've, I've got to be honest the first thing i did then was went right back to the it crowd the tv show have you ever watched that oh i yeah i've seen a couple of episodes the, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The internet in the box sorry trish but yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but, that, but that's i mean so if we go back to the 1990s i mean I, you know before we had the world wide web i i was actually again going back to my geeky geeky friends in middle school and high school we were the kids that were on the dial-ups and the bbs's and doing the phone freaking and all the stuff that you see matthew you know matthew broderick do in the old 1980s movies and that kind of stuff we were into all of that and that was before things were connected so you know, I could, I could, from home, I could Procom, I could dial into the BB, I could dial into the library, the local library, and be able to access some quote unquote online information. But it was isolated, right? It was, it was a point, it was peer to peer. It was my computer that was connecting to a very specific computer at the library to be able to access that information. So what changed with the World Wide Web is we suddenly had this connectivity that really expanded it out. It went from peer-to-peer -to, -peer to this, de it went from centralized to decentralized. So, you know, the internet, in essence, exists on all of these different computers that make up the internet all around the world. It's not just these local area networks that are restricted just to, you know, peer-to-peer um, -peer of these physical machines. It's this wide web of connectivity of computers all the way, you know, all around the world, which is where the World Wide Web and where the internet as we know it like really comes from. Well, blockchain is sort of in that same sort of infancy right now. The only public expression of blockchain that we have are the cryptocurrencies and the crypto exchanges that are coming up, right? So those are 
those are public in that they're public versions of blockchain. And, and those two things are different. There's the cryptocurrency, which is kind of the first use case of the blockchain technology was in crypto. And the first crypto is Bitcoin. So, but the two are not the same thing. To say Bitcoin is not blockchain, it's an application of blockchain in that particular, in that particular use case. But you've got, you've got something that was centralized, right? So when we think about money and we think about currency, we think about banks, we think about the stock market, we might think here in the United States, I would think about the US Mint, you know, where does money come from? Well, it gets printed, you know, on special presses at these, you know, various locations around the United States. When we need more dollars, we print more dollars, right? Like, so where does money come from? It comes from this centralized system. It's not public. Not everybody has access to it. It's only these third parties, these banks and these financial institutions that have access to it. Bitcoin and the crypto exchanges are on blockchain. That's a public version of blockchain and their public currencies, if you will. Everybody can get access to it. It's not controlled by any one authority. And so if we think about that decentralized kind of paradigm, it's the same kind of decentralized sense of the internet. And it has kind of that same infancy of the internet. So internet started out, you know, it was my computer talking to the library computer. That was, you know, a peer-to-peer -peer connection, but that was, that was private between those two machines. Well, when you start adding the collective to that and start opening that up into, you know, casting the net wider, you go from those those private versions of it to public. And right now we have some very, um, a small number of public use cases, which is around the crypto and mostly around the crypto, but there are other use cases now that are public blockchains. And we also have organizations can create their own internal private blockchains because it's open source technology. So you can create a, a blockchain right now that's private to your organization, but eventually what's going to happen is and so then there, what's going to happen is that flow of information like what you just described. So you're with this employer, you earn these credentials, you went to this kind of training, you developed your skills in this kind of way. All of that record, all of those records are then on the digital ledger, which is the purpose that blockchain serves. So all of those transactions, all of those things that have happened now become blocks on the blockchain. And eventually what's gonna happen is those, the blockchain is gonna wind up being like the internet and expanded into kind of this larger public entity that's fueled by AI, that's gonna be lit up with 5G, that's going to allow greater and greater scale of blockchain public access so that those things go along with us no matter where we go. So if you, change jobs or become a consultant and work for a client that anybody who has access and transaction to that blockchain is then going to be able to have access to those transactions and those records because you've got that exchange of trust, that exchange of information. You want them to be able to see your qualifications and your skills. So, so kind of thinking about this, and this is me just thinking tangent. So in theory, this this could be the end of passports, right? It will, yes. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm I'm just thinking kind of instantly all the stuff what we deem as 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 important, I guess, from traveling passports. I mean, like you say, that the kind of the selling of houses and and 
all that information was tied to that house and, and that product and that service and, and wherever else. And there's the disintermediation, right? Because the other the other entity that would be involved in the sale of property here in the United States would be a title company. And the entire purpose of a title company is that they're the middleman, right? That sits in the middle and says, okay, here's the chain of custody. The house was built, you know, this year it was owned, you know, the property was owned by ABC and then it got sold to so-and-so. And they're they're the ones that keep the records in the ledger that says, okay, here are the transactions that have happened that matter to this property. So that, you know, when I came along in the late 1990s and wanted to buy the property, I worked with the real estate attorney, the, my, you know, real estate agent, you know, had to work, you know, they had to work then with the woman who was selling the house, you know, her entities on that side. And then the title company that kept the record of the property and, all of that goes away. So, so then I'm, I'm instantly kind of going to the fact of my, my, my medical records, right? It kind of, it becomes this, you know, we call it a ledger, but that's what it becomes, right? It becomes your your one-stop shop of you. Is that is that fair to say? Kind of everything will fall within that ledger and it, it, in theory, it kind of removes every need of, of, of physical from from physical cars to physical copies of my medical records to, I mean, obviously there needs to be a big infrastructure shift, but I guess it kind of it empowers me, the user, to have my information stored up with me, not necessarily like you say it becomes this decentralized thing, right? And 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 my personal records and all, and all the stuff what is is me follows me not necessarily for, is on a system for the nhs is, am i going and, too far down the line there no no you're 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 totally on you're totally on point so now think about you know we've got we've got what over two billion people right now so what uh global population is at you know um somewhere between like, I think we're at 7.6, 7.7 billion people on the planet and 2 billion of them can't participate in the global economy at all because they don't even have any personally identifying papers. They don't have any identification. They have nothing that confirms that I am who I say I am. And we've got, you know, also we've got, I think the numbers are roughly about the same. We've also got people that don't have record systems in the communities that they live in the societies that they live of that have records that talk about the property or the assets that they have. So, so you and I can leverage, you know, the assets that we have, I can go to the bank, right. And go get an equity loan against the house. So I, you know, and I've got the paperwork that says, you know, Trish Yule has, you know, right now ownership of the house along with another bank, but I can take that and say, here's my proof that says that this is an asset that I have ownership of. And, I can go ahead and, you know, get money against the equity that I have invested into the home. There are billions of people that we have, you know, that have that actually own property, but do not have the paperwork necessary in order for them to participate in that, in that kind of way. They don't have access to capital. They can't leverage their assets. Um, So what does that do, right? What does that do to, people who suddenly have a, a means of being able to personally identify themselves. What does that do to the to economies around the world, to the global economy when, you know, the the couple of billion people that 
don't have a way of being able to leverage their assets, have what they need, have the good record keeping, if you will, have access to a ledger that we are all on that allows them to participate. What, how does that reshape the entire world? How does that reshape global society? So, so uh, yeah. So I'm just to, I'm just thinking kind of. So it, how does this start? So I mean, when I say how does this start, I mean from from a, a newborn baby. So let's just pretend everything's set up now, and you know, we're years down the line. Infrastructure is right. Everything. Day one, baby's born. Okay, so that that information of of of, of baby A needs to go somewhere, right? It kind of. So how how does a so when it comes to kind of this ledger, is it a kind of a case of would it be the adults would control that ledger up till the you know a bit like how it is now at a certain day of age that's when you become responsible for your own ledger but up until that the parents kind of control that ledger is that is that how it works is that how i'm just trying to think how does day one start for a newborn baby who's coming into this world where blockchain is 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 there it's it's active it's it's not new it's you know we're used to it well let let's take a look at like kind of you know so i i know I'm familiar here with babies in the United States. So where do they get identity from, right? So, so let's say for sake of this conversation that the mother gives birth at a hospital and it's, you know, so where does the record of that birth start? It starts with a business, you know, there's a department in the hospital that handles that. And then the birth of that child goes back here to our government agency it goes to the Social Security Administrative Office, which you know keeps track of um, citizens, you know, in the United States. So they're the ones that issue the unique identifier. The Social Security number is what we use here in the United States that identifies that particular individual. And you know, a birth record here in the United States would have here's the name of the baby and then here's the name of the father and here's the name of the mother. And then here's where that child, you know, the date and time and weight and location and all that information that's relative to a U.S. you know, birth certificate right now. And that's, that's where the ledger for a human being and an American citizen here in the United States starts. So what happens in blockchain without getting crazy about the technology is that in order in order for another block, so every transaction becomes a block on the chain, right? It becomes another block that's added to the chain. And in order for that block to get added to the chain, it has to be, it has to be verified. Now, and again, this goes through much more of an automated kind of process. But once it gets verified, and, and the entity that verifies it is, is what's known as the oracle, which is kind of interesting. So so an oracle doesn't have to be a human or a department or an agency, or it could be a sensor. It could be a device. It could be, you know, it could be that the baby is born and then, you know, hospital bands, like there's a hospital band and maybe it's got a QR code and it gets scanned. That scanner could be the oracle that says, okay, you know, Trisha Marie was just born and, you know, here are all the details. And that's now a block on, you know, that particular chain. And that's, that's how it is that it gets started. And what, what's interesting is then everybody on that blockchain that is involved in that transaction um, 
instantly has access to the same information. So there's no, um, you know, it was really funny. One of the podcasts, one of your earlier podcasts that I was listening to, um, somebody brought up um, uh, one of my favorite series, which is Hyperion and, and Dan Simmons and Hyperion and the Shrike and, and all of that. And one of the other series that I think about is um, Neil Stevenson and, well, not a series, but one of his books is Snow Crash. And the thing that always took me about Snow Crash is Snow Crash is all about what happens when somebody, when you have a population in a society, a small percentage of the population that can withhold information and put the rest of the population at their mercy by withholding that information. And that's that's how it works today, right? Like that's where the power dynamics come from. And again, going back to, you know, bureaucracy and that as an org structure in our organizations, you have the haves and the have nots and the haves, part of what the haves have is access to information that the have nots are not privy to. But in blockchain, everybody has, everybody who's supposed to have access has access, has equal access to that information. And and it's been vetted by an oracle, right? Which is whatever the entity is that has um, been identified in that particular transaction, if you will, to, to be the source of truth, right? To verify. And it's by consensus. So everybody on the blockchain may not necessarily agree, but it's, it's the collective consensus, right? And then everybody's got access to that information at the same time. And with the way that the security is built into blockchain itself, it's supposed to be immutable. It's supposed to be that once it's there, it's fixed, it can't be changed. And so when we think about like, you know, going back to like Orwell and thinking about, you know, books like 1984 or thinking about Animal Farm and those types of dystopian kind of outlooks, you know, I think about like Brave New World, and that whole idea of being able to change the history books and being able to like, you know, change the record of something in order to hold a society at, you know, again, a small percentage of the population can hold a larger percentage of the population at its mercy by withholding information. That goes away. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's exciting. It's exciting, and, and so let, so if so that circles us back to the you know how does that radically change humanity from five thousand years? Well, our record keepers have always been reliant on third parties that were third party humans that weren't necessarily representing our own best interest. You know, you go back and take a look at you know where where did the banking institutions where did you know where did what we think of as currency and money and where did that even start? We we just take it for granted. You know, I take it for granted that when I take paper money and change out of my out of my you know wallet that it has value. Well, that's a narrative. That's that's an agreement. That's a consensus by society by global society that says okay, when Trish handovers you know hands over. Um, you know, $10 or $20 or whatever at the airport to buy gifts for her nieces back home when she's flying out of Heathrow, that that money has some value, that that thing, that instrument has some worth. That's, that's society getting together collectively. There's no inherent value to that piece of paper. It's something that we've agreed upon as a collective and it's controlled by a centralized source, right? Like I, 
we have no control as the public to say what the exchange rates are, you know, and what my American dollar is worth when I'm, you know, standing in the UK. That's controlled by these third party entities. And that's been since the beginning of time. That's been since the Medici's. That's been, you know, that was we've had somebody else keeping the records and we've been reliant on a third party keeping the records. And those third parties have been institutions comprised of people. And so we've been at the mercy. So if they've been benevolent and have actually served society in our best interest, then okay, yay on us, we've done well. And if they've been corrupt, then we've been, then we've suffered as a society. So that's what I mean. It's the underpinning of society. It's the underpinning of governance. I, you know, what is, what is governing? What is government other than a, a collection of laws that we have in some way, shape or form collectively within a certain population agreed to, that we've agreed to, to some degree or another to adhere to. Um, but what if that was no longer having to be mediated by other humans in another third party in another agency that was, you know, again, comprised of humans? What if that was mediated by the, the terms of our agreement were mediated by a technology that doesn't have the subjectivity and isn't, isn't subject to corruption in the same way that sometimes human beings can be? It's, it's interesting. I think I just, I was kind of, thinking then i remember when i was a young lad and i would find old money you know from when my granddad's kind of and you know the, my parents would say oh that was a i don't know half a crown or, or whatnot and i just think soon our money now will be the old money and and after that you know we'll be looking at you know in over in the uk the pound the two pound coin the five pound note or maybe not the notes but the coins and it's interesting to know that the next iteration from that isn't physical. Like, yeah, it's it's interesting that we're in an era potentially. Well, we're in an era where we're going to see the last use of coin, and it's just it's an interesting it's an interesting thought exercise. I think to kind of understand. You know, I've been in the time where I've seen past all coins, I've seen the present coins, and then the next stage of that is no coins. It's it's an interesting thing to think on, I think. And, and at least theoretically, although, you know, Bitcoin, given all its challenges and, you know, and especially some of the challenges as of late, it's still 10 years old, right? So talk about a proof of concept. Give it, you know, for, for the haters out there, like give it some respect. You know, it's still 10 years old. It's lasted a decade. Um, and some of the challenges that, you know, Bitcoin has, like some of the, you know, some of the theft that's happened and some of the corruption that's happened, it's interesting because it hasn't actually happened at the blockchain level. It's happened at the point of contact of the applications that are accessing the blockchain, right? So that's where the weak. So that, is that the, the exchange? What's that? Is that like the point of exchange? At that point of exchange, yeah. right? It's at that application level. It's not at the blockchain level. So, so you know, so like some of the hacking that we've heard and the, you know, the, the way that they've been able to, you know, go in and actually have the theft of, you know, the theft of this currency, of the cryptocurrency, it's happening at the point of the exchange. It's happening at the it's happening at the application level, not at the blockchain level. 
And, but all of that to say, we're moving into we're 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 moving into do you want to hear one last story to blow your mind yeah yeah let's do it you want to hear hear so so it it's an exchange of anything of value and so so I, I, so what we're going to wind up seeing is, you know, kind of going back to salesforce.com and thinking about that core technology. And, you know, if we go back to 2016, and if we were to look at the original iteration of, you know, Einstein analytics that they released to the public, of course, that data science, cognitive computing platform driven by AI, fueled by data. Well, and again, think about how much, you know, in, in that time since 2016, I mean, Spring of 2016 is when computer vision started getting good, right? That's that's when artificial intelligence matured enough to be able to do image recognition really, really well. It was in uh, February of 2016. And that's why, you know, if we go back in time and go back to 2016, that's why the first Amazon Go store, which is driven by computer, it's um, driven by um, computer vision. It's driven by cameras in the store, right? So the whole way that people can shop and you know, walk into an Amazon Go store and not and just take things off the shelf and put them into whatever, whatever bag and then walk out of the store and Amazon just charges your account. That magic happens because of cameras that are working off of computer vision, that are working off of image recognition based on live feeds, real time is happening in the store. So we got access to that capability in February of 2016 and had the first major application of it in an Amazon Go store by December of 2016. That's astounding. So if we go back and think about the evolution of just even artificial intelligence into a system like Salesforce's Einstein Analytics, which got launched in 2016, and how much AI has evolved since then now, you know, here and in coming into the summer of, or summer here in the Northern Hemisphere in, in 2019, you've got that core kernel of technology that now is these other emerging technologies. So blockchain and then later quantum computing and so on and so forth, that's gonna get integrated in. These things are gonna converge. It's just going to, enhance the existing, it's going to enhance the existing platforms. And then we're going to feed it more data by the lightning strike by the Frankenstein monster that's going to be 5G, because 5G is suddenly going to be like, we've got, I think of Mickey Mouse and the Disney movie Fantasia, where all these inanimate objects, you know, suddenly come to life through magic. It's, we're going to have that kind of hyper connectivity and, and, and it's just going to be these sources of data that are going to feed the beast, which is going to be driven by AI, which is going to be mediated by these systems of trust with blockchain, you know, underlying, and then forget it when we, you know, add quantum computing to all of this. It's just it's crazy where we're about to go. We're, we're at that point of, you know, people talk about, you know, linear progress. And then, you know, Kurzweil talks about going from linear to exponential and they, you know, they show you the graphs of the hockey stick. Well, we've already made the bend in the hockey stick. We're already on the exponential. We just, we're at the very beginning of it. And we just haven't felt, we haven't fully felt the acceleration of it yet, but we're feeling it. That's why things feel so unsettling because they are, because 
the constructs are dematerializing. So the last thing on blockchain that I think you'll find interesting is property. One of the next big things that's going to go to property is, or that's going to go to blockchain is real estate. We're going to tokenize real estate. And one of the applications that I saw of it, this was like fascinating to me in, uh, so I was just at the Malta AI and blockchain summit, which is really significant because we now have countries, we now have nation states that are competing not only on artificial intelligence, but are competing on these other technologies. And so Malta has rebranded itself as Blockchain Island. And they have passed legislation in blockchain uh, as of late last year that now makes the island nation of Malta very, very blockchain friendly, very friendly to um, businesses coming and actually being established out of Malta and, you know, attracting talent to come and learn from, you know, these different educational and conference events. They are positioning themselves to be world leaders in, you know, blockchain technology. And they're really very good at it, by the way. But one of the vendors that I was talking to there and kind of going back to something you were talking about with uh, virtual reality and, and augmented reality is, so, so get this, Danny, this company, they're called um, OVR. So OV is in Victor, R is in Roger. And if you look at them, they are actually setting up a blockchain-driven marketplace that basically is selling blockchain-related plots of virtual land all over the world. So they've taken the entire earth and they've um, cut it up into uh, the same size hexagons. And in their marketplace, you'll be able to buy a hexagon of virtual land that maps to an actual physical place. <laughs> wow. Okay. And and in that virtual land, you'll be able to offer virtual reality and augmented reality, which of course makes it mixed reality content. So as other humans find themselves physically in that geographic location at your hexagon. So I, at this point, I think of the board game Monopoly, right? So when they land on your square, that little piece of property that you own, but it's not in the physical world, it's just a virtual coordinate that you know maps to the physical space they'll be able to access the mixed reality content and that experience that you've created for them wow okay so so i mean <laughs> that's got me thinking lots more kind of questions and 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 i'm i'm, I'm mindful of time um yeah but so then if 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 I buy a, a hexagon of real estate, let's call it, that that potentially means that when AR and and kind of you know AR VR and mixed reality merge together, then that potentially becomes a, a plot of land to rent. Am I right in saying this? Is this potentially yeah. where it can go? So then, I mean that's a big leap. That's a big leap in time, not in time. Sorry, that's 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 very forward thinking and it reminds me of kind of um a movie what i've seen recently um the one that's based on a book um where they have that that own their own world i can't remember what it's called i want to say it's called one day but it's not um 
and that's all about kind of mixed reality and, and I think it was Steven Spielberg who directed it recently oh, oh. It'll, it'll come it'll come to me it's it's based around a, a, a book basically um and I think the book's quite an old book but kind of it was deemed quite quite ahead of its of its time I guess um oh my days what is a book name called and then ah, I'm just seeing if I've, if I've got it in me. No, I haven't got it. God damn it! It'll come to. I know for a fact <laughs> it'll come to me as soon it'll as. It'll be it, in the show notes. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes. But it kind of it, it kind of come to me in in here in that thing. It's kind of all about um, there's clans within within this virtual space and and, and whatnot, and that you know property is is that virtual space, and people go there to kind of. Yeah, kind of, you know, be away from the real world. But it, I guess when I watched it originally, I was kind of like, uh, you know, how, how far away is that? But kind of just listening to to what you mentioned, Etris, it actually does not seem that far away at all. Oh, no, they're they're live online. Like, you can go check out OVR right now. So so you're hitting on exactly the right things, Danny. So, so think about, like, let's say that you... So when I was when I was talking to them in Malta and they said, well, what hexagon would you own? I said, well, I want a hexagon that's on Main Street, USA and Disney World down in Florida. Because it's a huge traffic area, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like playing the Monopoly board game. I'm an American kid, right? Like I, you know, like that's I'm thinking in terms of how I was conditioned in the way that I was brought up. So I was like, well, there's a lot of people on Main Street, USA and in Disney and that means that there's a lot of people then that could potentially access that content because here's the cool thing. So here's where the e-commerce comes in and here's where more of, you know, blockchain comes in. So blockchain would then mediate those experiences and would also mediate the payout of those experiences back to the people who have a, a, a stake in it, right? Who have some kind of a revenue share. So let's say you bought the hexagon, you leased it to me, I went to a third party and actually, you know, contracted them to create the content. And let's say that I went to even another, you know, so I'm, I'm leasing the hexagon from you. I went out and worked with content creators, but the way that they're going to get paid is ongoing revenue from, they're going to get a split of the revenue when people access this content, when they're in that physical location on your hexagon that I'm leasing from you. And let's say that I also went out and I found an advertiser, right? I found a promoter. Um, and the same kind of thing. They're going to get a percentage of the revenue. So every time revenue is generated, all four of us need to get paid out, right? So I need to get paid out for being the, you know, the leasee. I need to pay you because you're the hexagon property owner. Content creator is going to get paid for their mixed reality, you know, grooviness. And the promoter is going to get paid for driving people to, you know, utilize the hexagon and access the, the mixed reality content that's there. But all of that payout, all of that revenue is instantly paid out through blockchain. So you don't have to worry about me coughing up the money for the lease. The contractor doesn't, the content contractor doesn't have to worry about me paying them out. The advertiser, the promoter doesn't have to worry about me paying it out. I don't have to worry about having that kind of, you know, back office capabilities and again, keeping a ledger of who gets paid what and when, and then making sure that people get, you know, timely payments, that's all handled by the blockchain. That's mental. That is, I mean, it's really exciting. It's really exciting. 
But it's crazy. So now if we take that, right? So we're talking about, um, well, one last thing on that and then a quick transition. And then I, you know, of course I am also conscious of time, but if, if we, you know, so to me, it's like going back and thinking about, you know, the internet and the World Wide Web again back in the 1990s. I, I remember the whole, you know, when I first started hearing people talking about buying domain names, why on earth would you buy a domain name? What, it's not a real thing. That's not real property. That's not a, you know, and you had people, that was when people started doing squatting and they would, you know, they'd buy like Coca-Cola's domain name and then wait for Coca-Cola to be like, hey, I want that. And then, you know, charge them a lot of money to be able to do that. It's, it was, it's a, you know, a domain is a virtual place, right? And it's these decentralized computers. When you buy, when you register a domain name through whatever you know entity you register that domain name to yourself, it takes, and you set up a website, it takes it a little bit of time to propagate because multiple computers on the internet need to catch up in a decentralized distribution system that this domain name has now been created and it has, it offers this kind of content. And so to me, I think about, you know, domain names and that virtual real estate, if you will, uh, and the hexagons, but we can also take that to physical property. So, you know, now instead of the title company having, you know, the surveyor's, you know, map of the actual, you know, property lines for the property that I own, you know, my physical property for my physical residence and what buildings are on it and so on and so forth. It becomes a digitized asset on the blockchain. And all the information, who was owned, what liens were against it, what it was sold for, what it was bought for, could even be maintenance records, could be all of that is all available on the blockchain. So when I go to sell the property, I don't have to go to all these different entities to go and get that information. I don't have to, no one has to pay the title company to go and see if it's free of any loans or free of any liens. They'll be able to see that just on the blockchain. And it, it's like you say, it completely removes friction. It becomes this f- frictionless, streamlined kind of exchange. It, it, I can't. I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of firing here, like so many ideas and and kind of where I'm thinking. Um, well, the books just come to mind as well while I'm at it. Ready, oh. Ready Player One. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. That's kind of what that kind of started. That kind of started to yeah. to merge into, but so yeah, Trish, let, let's let's do these last couple of questions, and we'll be done. But this has been okay, awesome. One, one last thing, just to extend it out. Now take that into L and D, and if we can have a hexagon that's got mixed reality content on it that people can access, and we don't have to be there in order to serve as the gatekeepers, you know. So if you own the hexagon and I'm leasing it, the content provider, da da da. We don't have to physically be present in order to deliver or fulfill that experience and everybody gets paid out. Then what does that mean to training content and knowledge management within organizations? <sighs> I don't I don't I don't even think there's I don't think there's a better kind of cliffhanger question to leave it on, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Until the next podcast. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Right, Trish, listen, um so yeah. So th- this has literally been awesome. Um, 
Let's do the last two questions. These are quite quick, and then I'll, I'll give you your, your day back because I could keep going here for another three hours. Not a problem. Um, so I guess right at the right at the right at the end, at the start of the session, I kind of said pick four numbers. Um, yeah. And, and your four numbers are tallied to four random items, and your items are a spoon, um, a sharpie marker face wash and eyeliner and the story is you're on a desert island and there are your four items what are you doing with them oh my god well it sounds like what i packed for burning man <laughs> <laughs> pretty pretty much <laughs> uh spoon a sharpie face wash and eyeliner and i'm on a desert island and what is it that i am uh doing with them so spoon is definitely something i'm going to use for eating in some kind of way um face wash is how it is that i'm going to stay refreshed sharpie is what i'm going to use in order to um write and be creative and play i don't know games of tic-tac-toe and whatever against myself on whatever kind of um coconut trees or palm trees and um eyeliner is just to feel pretty nailed it nailed it so so i guess one of the last questions here Trish, is, is kind of you know at, at the start i asked you what you wanted to be when you be when you when you grow up and as you know we never really stop growing up and and we're always developing and we're always we're always kind of moving and kind of going through these periods of change and these transformations so if i was to ask you now trish what do you want to be when you grow up what would you say now well and again it goes back to my log line i mean it it really goes back to i mean i can i can look at the trajectory of anything that i've ever done in my life and the theme is the same which is how i came up with the sentence in the first place and and I don't expect that to change, although the conditions and the skills and the roles and the participation um, and the context in which I do it are are going to change. But it's to it's to equip and enable those who equip and enable others, right? So so it doesn't, you know, in my life I've been a project manager, I've been a software developer, I've been a learning professional, I've been a training professional, I've been in equestrian instructor i've you know schooled horses and schooled people i you know and even back to my grandmother's backyard and children on egg crates you know um so yeah i i would expect that as i continue to grow up that it's going to be along those lines and the way that i can continue to be in service to to people and community and to and to organizations around the world awesome so so where where can people kind of follow you, Trish, and keep up to date with all the things what you're doing, looking at, sharing? Where where can we find you? Two of the best places to find me, because again, lots of things are in flux, and so the online properties, if you will, or the virtual representations that get most investment from me right now are LinkedIn for sure. Um, so I'm of course Trish Yule there. And then also on Twitter, so at Trish Yule, so at T-R-I-S-H-U-H-L. Awesome. Well, Trish, it's been an absolute pleasure and, and I appreciate you taking three hours and 16 minutes out of your day. 
for this podcast. I absolutely, and I think it's going to be an absolute treat for my listeners as well. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Danny. I really appreciate it. And yay cake. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that we had gotten quite that long, but really what a great conversation. I look forward to more. Awesome, Trish. You enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Have a good evening. Cheers. Cheers.